Hello, and welcome back to the Long Distance Love Bombs podcast. And today's guest is a special one. It's my good friend, Connor Beaton. Connor is... I just don't have enough good things to say about Connor. He is one of my closest friends. I've been in a men's group with him for the last three years. He has changed my life in profound and impactful ways many times over. He has been a loyal confidant. He has helped me out personally through my own shit. I think that he is one of the best in the game, full stop, period. I have nothing but respect and admiration for this dude. He is the best. So, that said, Connor's got a new book out. His very first book, and it's called Men's Work, A Practical Guide to Face Your Darkness, End Self-Sabotage, and Find Freedom. We've got actionable exercises in there for self-inquiry, for achieving healthy love, a joy-filled life, and fulfilling sexual connections, as well as deep purpose. So we talk about bunch of that stuff. And we laugh more than I've ever laughed on a podcast. At one point, it gets to a level of absurdity and hilarity that is as random (laughs) and inappropriate as it is. (laughs) I mean, you just have to listen. We have a good time in this one. And Connor is eloquent, and he is deep, and he is profound and intelligent. The stuff that he talks about is powerful, life-changing, And he is especially known for working with the shadow side of our psyche. And we dive into that. We dive into all of it. And you're going to love this one. Connor is amazing. And I think the closeness of our relationship helps make this one flow very easily. And also, I can ask him some really good questions along the way. So he's got a new book. Oh, what else did he do? He founded Man Talks. Man Talks is an incredible organization. Helps men out. They do live, in-person events. They have an online community. He does coaching. He does speaking. He's on Instagram. Just follow him. Give him your money. Get in his world. He is, uh, he's just one of the best around. Uh, So, so fortunate to know him and really excited that he decided to come by the podcast. So without further ado, here's Connor Beaton. Yeah, fuck it. Let's just record. Because I felt like you were just about to say something really interesting, at which time I would be like, oh, man, we should have recorded that. But go go on. (laughs) You almost had like a Bill O'Reilly moment. You remember that like one thing? Fuck it. We'll do it live. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Do you know that that clip from Bill O'Reilly on Fox News? Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just I was just about to say what I've been surprised about as I've been going on all these podcasts and having conversations with people is the diversity of people who have enjoyed the book and like i was on dr Nicola paris show the holistic psychologist and dr alexandra solomon who are pretty reputable psychologists you know and i'm not a i'm not a clinical psychologist or a licensed therapist and the feedback that they've given about the book is really phenomenal and then i go on podcasts that are very like male oriented, you know, like the order of man and still very well received, you know, still like, uh, you know, I love this. I appreciate the concepts and the way that things are positioned. And so that for me feels like a win in a time where men and masculinity is a charged topic, 
You know, it's just a very charged topic. And I wrote a book called Men's Work. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So there's that. Yeah, it's such a it's such a tricky like eye of the needle to thread to be yes. widely regarded, widely received, widely read. When I feel like in society nowadays, there's so many polarized, separate kind of echo chambers slash bubbles of content and people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to, I think, have some of these discussions about, yeah, because there's a lot of commentary in modern society and mainstream narratives about how men are in decline and boys are struggling and, um, you know, men are struggling. And it's hard to have the conversations about what do we do about that without infringing on um, women or, or you know, women doing the work. Like, I remember when I first started Man Talks, literally the name would trigger the shit out of people. And I would get messages all the time from women being like, why do men need this? You know, this is like, how come, like, why is your company called Man Talks? Like, don't men have enough? And I was like, well, I don't know if you understand what my mission is <laughs> like <laughs> you know it's to help men lead themselves more effectively and be better uh be better men be better husbands be better fathers be better leaders within our communities contribute more effectively you know and so yeah so it's it's a very interesting time and and i wanted to write the book in a way where i wasn't telling the reader this is what it means to be a man because I think this is where a lot of books for men fall into a trap. They say, here's my prescription for you of how you should be as a man, or here's what masculinity is and what you need to do in order to be masculine, or here's how women are and how you need to be in order to win with them. And I wanted to try and avoid all those sort of traditional pitfalls. And you know, the reader might gain a better sense of how they define masculinity and what it means to be a good man but it's not because i told them you know and so that was that was a tricky part that was something that i like set out where i was like i don't want to tell men how to be a man you know because i i don't like that i think generally speaking we as men it's like i don't want somebody telling me what to do or how to think or how to be or how to operate or what decisions i should make it's like don't don't i'm not interested in that you know, if you want to share your ideas and concepts and topics, and then I'll tune into that. Um, but if you want to tell me exactly how I should live my life, I'm probably going to check out. <laughs> it's like, like generally, as a rule, I think what I've learned is like we as men don't want advice unless shit has hit the fan and we're at crisis mode. You know, then then we're like, okay, shit, tell me, tell me what I should do. How do I fix this with my girlfriend? You know, I really fucked up. Um, so yeah, I remember. Uh an ex of mine giving me David Data's The Way of the Superior Man and uh -huh. saying, I really think that you'll like this book and that you should read it. And within two seconds, I was like, nope, fuck that. Never reading that. Don't tell me what to do. I'm good. It's like yeah. this stubborn reactivity. And then totally. years later, I read it of my own volition, loved it, re remembered that moment with a bit of shame and regret like oh dang probably could handle that better yeah um what was i going to ask you um i think too there's sort of a when you mentioned um not wanting to give this prescription for being a man and kind of telling people how to live it almost creates this 
hierarchical shaming of, of like, I know the way I am the answer rather than, Hey, I'm standing right next to you side by side and we'll walk the road together, which is what it sounds like you've attempted to do here. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I I think that's fair. I, I think what I tried to do was say, here's where I really went astray in my life as a man. And, and here's where I struggled. And over the last decade, here's what I've seen men struggling with. Here are some of the very like specific obstacles that I've seen men having to pierce through. And here's what some of those men have done. And here are some of the tools that I've found to be deeply effective in my own life, in my own work, and with the work that I've done with men. So rather than saying, here's what you need to do, it's more, here's here's what are some possibilities of tools that can help you on your path, on your journey of stepping into the man that you want to be however you define that however you view that whatever that looks like externally and internally but here are some options for you and here are some tools and some resources and i think you know i always advocate for self-leadership you know this notion that we are the author you know i mean maybe we don't need to go down like too much of a spiritual path or like existential, but like, you know, we author our stories in some ways. It's our choices and our decisions and our capacity to lead ourselves. I think for a lot of men is what they're struggling with is that a lot of guys feel out of control. Like they're not leading themselves in their health or their, their fitness or in their relationship or in their career or finances. And for the most part, that makes us somewhat miserable. You know, it's like, I don't like the choices that I'm making as a man. It's, that's very hard. You know, that's incredibly challenging to, to live with. So, yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I tried to do. Yeah. You've basically, it sounds like created a buffet and handed people the plate, which is the book and just said, here, you know, here's a smorgasbord, help yourself. Here's a bunch of things to sample rather than saying, eat this, drink this. This is all you get. This is the six razzle dazzle steps to increase your masculinity in four easy payments of nine ninety nine, which is so prevalent well, that, today. That, that exists out there, right? I mean, I think yeah. way of the superior man is a good example of a book that's prescriptive, right? Mm. It's like, here's what it looks like to be masculine. And here's what you have to do. And here's how you have to live. And I think that that works, that works for some people. And it works for some people at different places in their life. I remember reading Way of the Spirit Man a couple of times and really enjoying it, you know, and being like, oh, there's a lot of value in this. Um, But I also have seen, you know, when, when therapists and psychologists and coaches are like, what books do you recommend to men? Like, what books should I recommend to my clients? You know, because there's sort of like this vacancy in terms of, a book that men can go through who are wanting to do self-work you know who are wanting to do self-reflection and better themselves there's there's kind of a vacancy right there's like no more mr nice guy um there's to be a man there's way of the superior man and we have to mention uncivilized uh, uncivilized yeah. yeah yeah mr uncivilized you know and so i think and some of those books are incredibly good um and i think that they're very helpful but I wanted to provide something that had like things that guys could do. So it's very tactical. So every chapter has questions, 
prompts for guys to, to journal about and dig into exercises that they can do challenges that they, that they can do and make it sort of training based you know so it's like you're gonna you're gonna have to do something as you go through this i mean connor i've been told that you can just read things and have new ideas and that will change your life without actually doing anything different is that mistaken manifest it <laughs> i was just gonna namaste some abundance bro like <laughs> You know what? When you say it, it actually, it, I, it actually sounds much more believable. Like I, I almost buy it when you say, "It's gonna manage, it's gonna namaste some abundance." I'm like, "Yeah, I can actually see Jeremy Goldberg doing that." Yeah, doing it right now. Do you feel it? <laughs> you feel my auras, my chakras, yeah. my chakras. Yeah. No, I mean, I think there's a lot of spiritual bypassing in the personal development and wellness space. You know, there's a lot of talking about change but not necessarily be willing to do the hard thing of, of creating that change. And I think that at least for myself, I am one of those people who is prone to not changing until things get really bad, until, until things fall apart, blow up. And that was a lesson I was really tired of learning in my life. And so part of the book is designed to say, like, if you are tired of waiting for shit to just blow up in your life and implode, <laughs> this is also some of the work that you can do to make sure that that isn't necessary all the damn time. You know, it's like, uh, it's hard to learn that lesson, you know, that way repeatedly, although I, you know, that I seem to have a propensity towards that. Um, <laughs> one, one reason we're good friends, I think. <laughs> like, That's right. Oh, yeah. I, I picture that movie Thelma and Louise, you know, at, at the end, they're in a car and they're basically heading off towards the end of a giant chasm in the earth, like a big canyon. And right. I picture just being signs along the way of like canyon ahead, 200 meters or someone standing there waving them to stop. And and then they go over the edge of the canyon and then perhaps you and I turning to each other and being like, man, maybe now we should read that book. You know, it's like, right. well, it's so it's so late. We're getting divorced. We're an addict. We're, we had a heart attack. Everything's falling yeah. apart. And it sounds like what you're saying is, hey, here's a few warning signs or yeah. alternative paths off of that current situation that you can take. Yeah. Learn from my rock bottoms. Maybe that's the next <laughs> book. <laughs> yeah. I, I like to joke. I don't know if I've told you this, but that I visited rock bottom so frequently that I bought some land and invested in a property there and I'm redecorating <laughs> the apartment. So I just want to be really cozy when I go back, you know, right, but for right, a long right. time, it was that, you know, I was marinating and suffering and victimhood and scared to make changes, didn't know what to do. Can you give some examples of uh, the actionable items that you talk about in your book in terms of sort of the training protocol? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple, there's a couple of different things that we we could talk about. I mean, there's, you know, one I have a section about porn in the book, and I try and take a as much as I can. I try and not take a a stance on like is porn good or bad because I think that generally speaking, when people talk about porn, that's the debate that they fall into, and it's not as useful as what. What do you want to do if you don't want porn in your life anymore, but you can't stop watching it? You know, um, so there's an action plan there. There's I talk about how to embrace your anger and and you and really utilize it. Um, I talk about you know healing your relationship to, with your father. 
in some way, shape, or form. So, you know, the book, the book is kind of broken into a couple of parts, lead, love, liberate, and legacy. And I talk about shadow work quite a bit. And so helping people come into contact with the parts of themselves that they don't like, like their insecurities and their inner critic. So, you know, like for just a, a quick example, like with the porn one, and we, we can talk about pornography more, or any of those topics, if you feel like they're relevant with the porn topic, you know, I, I admitted in the book that I'm pretty biased because I really battled with pornography for a long time. And I started watching porn when I was young. I was probably 12, 13 years old. And I think the average age now is between like nine and 12 that a young boy is going to find pornography, which is crazy, right? I mean, the average teenager can see more naked women in an hour than any human being in human history would have seen in their entire life. I mean, just think about that, like just in terms of consumption, that, that's ridiculous, you know, like how desensitizing and how much of a mind fuck is that? But, you know, I found porn when I was like 12, 13 years old, and it became a staple part of my sexual diet, I guess you could say. Um, but it became something that was unhealthy, something that I was using you know, multiple, multiple times a week, sometimes for hours at a time. Uh, you know, it was kind of like this mistress in all of my relationships. And I felt like I couldn't stop watching it in, in, you know, in some points in my life. And, you know, I had a pretty high sex drive. And so it's not that I wasn't have, it's not that I wasn't sexually active in my relationships. I was very sexually active and there was also infidelity and all of this kind of stuff. But porn was also in the background. And when I really wanted to stop watching porn, I found that it was incredibly hard. It was really, really challenging for me. It really felt like I was trying to give up an addiction. And I started to look for resources online. And you know, this is years ago where the concept of porn addiction was almost like nonsensical. Like people just weren't really talking about it. And so I, I started to just sort of wing it. You know, I brought it up with my mentor at the time and I said, I don't know how to deal with this. And, you know, we sort of chatted about it and he asked me a very fruitful question, which was, what are you normally feeling before you want to watch porn? Like, is it that you're always horny every single time? And I was like, I actually don't know. And so I, I committed to two things for the, for about a month which I wrote in the book, which was number one, every time I wanted to watch porn, I would set a timer for about four or five minutes and I would sit down and I would close my eyes and just breathe and try and figure out what I was actually feeling. Was I actually horny? What I started to realize was that the majority of the time, probably eight or nine times out of 10, I was bored, I was lonely, I was anxious, I was stressed out, I was overwhelmed, you know, I was freaking angry and frustrated. And I just didn't want to deal with those emotions. And so the easier thing was to just go and open up a web browser, open up some pornography, jerk off and feel better. And that might sound like a, a pretty um, maybe blunt version of it, but it's what was true. So in the book, I lay out this plan where number one, I tell the reader to write about their porn watching ritual. Because after having worked with men for a decade, most men have a ritual around their porn. They watch it at a certain time of day, 
you know, they watch it in a certain bedroom. They're watching very specific types of pornography. Like a lot of it is actually ritualized, especially especially for guys that are quote unquote chronic users, like guys that are watching porn multiple times a week. They generally have a spe- like pretty specific routine or ritual around their porn. And so to write that out and to kind of see when is this happening uh, and what are you feeling when it's happening? And then second, to do exactly what I outlined before, which is every time you want to go watch porn, set a timer for yourself, sit down with no distractions and just tune into what you're actually feeling to see if you're actually feeling something else. You know, to see if you're feeling bored and you can call a friend, to see if you're feeling lonely and you can go and have some social connection, to see if you're feeling anxious or overwhelmed and you can deal with that instead. And so that is one of the parts. And then the second part is to move from this medication to meditation, right? So to actually implement something that's going to be more generative, right? So once you've realized like, oh, I'm actually just stressed out and I feel wound up and I want to watch porn in order to get to sleep. Well, can you go do yoga instead? Can you go meditate instead? Can you go and do something generative that's actually going to help you regulate your nervous system? Because the truth is that a lot of men, not not every guy, right? This is just a general statement, but a lot of men are using pornography as a means of regulating their system. So they're overly stressed, overly anxious, they're bored, they're lonely, they're frustrated, they've just gotten in an argument with their girlfriend or their wife or partner, and they're turning to pornography to just feel a little bit better, to regulate their nervous system, to get a hit, hit of dopamine, feel good, and then forget about whatever happened before, forget about the overwhelm, forget about the anxiety. So that's um, that's both like a personal story and then some tactical stuff that people can can do so i just gave you both sides of it <laughs> i love it man i love that i'm like can you just give a random example about action here's a 10 minute monologue about my history with pornography it's like so <laughs> so good and i think just to clarify to the listener that the porn is a sort of meta example of anything that is helping you to soothe avoid distract totally. etc so it might be shopping eating sex weed yeah all of it yeah and so just to clarify that process that you just identified do you think that's applicable to all of those other sort of addictive Mm -hmm. things as well Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i have had the fortune of cycling through many of those uh things that you listed minus the shopping i've never really been big into using shopping as my form of distraction but yeah the same thing right if you're somebody that you know, smokes weed multiple times a week, it's likely that you're using that to not feel something, right? To avoid something. And I think it's the the literature is like, if you're using, if you're smoking weed more than twice a week, it's, it's considered chronic, which I thought was wild. And same with alcohol now, right? It's like a lot of the research that's finally coming out on alcohol is saying like, yeah, if you're drinking more than twice a week, then that's considered chronic. You know, yeah, and that means and so, the, can, the Canadian guidelines just said two drinks a week, not even twice a week, like not two days of five to 10 drinks each, like two drinks a week. Yeah. Like it's a very big shift. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can, you can use that tool uh, in the place of like whatever your thing is, right? Maybe it's Cheetos at 930 at night or, you know, 
ice cream, you know, mint chocolate chip ice cream or whatever it is, popcorn. Uh, see how you're feeling before you go and use it because the likelihood is that you're using an external substance to soothe an internal experience. It's what many of us do, right? We use an external substance to soothe an internal experience. Like, I don't want to feel that way. So I better, you know, eat that tub of popcorn or <laughs> smoke that joint or eat that ice cream or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And I'm not saying that we, you know, should get rid of all vices or anything like that. I'm simply saying if there's something that is in your life that you've really had, you know, struggles and challenges letting go of, then tuning into what you're experiencing before you want to consume it or use it or interact with it is incredibly important um, because there's many things vying for our attention, but there's also many things vying for our nervous system, right? Facebook, Instagram, social media is just a, uh, a thing that sort of plugs into our nervous system. So there's many things vying for, for those, those parts of us. It reminded of this line from uh, Andrea Gibson and, and they say uh, something like, my heart is a hatchet. It either can build a home or tear one down. So in the same way that alcohol, porn, ice cream, popcorn, which this is a pro popcorn podcast, Connor, just oh, to clarify. I'm, I'm about start. it. I'm about popcorn and burritos. So, I know oh, you oh. and your burritos, brother. <laughs> so all of those things, they're they're like tools, right? In the same way a hammer can nail in a wall to build a home or a, a church, or it can be used to murder someone, right? And it's about the way that we utilize those things that really determines the meaning or the value in our lives. And it mm -hmm. sounds like you're saying something very similar here in terms of the choices we're making, the actions we're taking, how we're utilizing various things. And you're attempting through this training kind of protocol to navigate below the surface, cultivate a pause and really explore and identify what's going on. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, to, but yeah, I think okay, last, last point question is, is this like your Trojan horse way of helping people to dive into their own shadow and really look into the basement of their bodies and do some exploratory work in the darkness? Yes. Yeah. In essence, yes. It's, you know, we all carry challenging experiences, memories, sensations within us that we oftentimes don't want to deal with. I mean, to, to speak specifically about men, there's, you know, after, again, after like working with dudes from all over the world for the last 10 years, I've learned that most of us as men have a very specific relationship with fear and shame. Those are oftentimes the two emotions that we have the least amount of contact with. Like most, most guys, if you ask them, like, when are you actually feeling shame? A lot of guys are like, I actually, I have no idea. I don't know. You know, and it's not that they haven't experienced shame. It's just that most of the time we're just not aware of it. Right. And same, same thing with fear. There's a very interesting correlation between being a man, being masculine and fear. And so a lot of guys will try and avoid fear, what they're afraid of when they feel insecure, when they feel inferior, um, in order to feel more competent and confident and, and masculine and again this isn't all men this is this is just um some and so yeah this this sort of these sort of tools are an inadvertent way to dive into what's your own personal shadow this is a bit of a 
subject change, but why did you start Man Talks? It's like, wait, I, I'm sure you have the canned response and blah, blah. You've <laughs> done the podcast circuit. But I know way back in the day, right? You were still in the midst of the muck, right? You were coming out of a relationship. You were kind of hadn't healed a bunch of things. You were mm -hmm. still kind of in it. And then my understanding is you decided to launch Man Talks and started doing all this kind of work. Yeah. Um, I'm curious for the sort of origin story or background. I mean, in some ways, it was a project for me to really answer some of my own internal questions that I hadn't sorted out. And so the the original idea was that I was going to have these events where these live events where men would come and share their life stories in 18 minutes. So they would come and share like the defining moments of their life in 18 minutes as if they were going to die tomorrow, right? So like, just imagine putting together a talk. It's like, okay, I'm going, if I was going to die tomorrow, what stories would I want to tell and what lessons would I want to leave people with? Like, what would I actually want to leave behind? And so my intention was to give men a space to share those things because when after I hit rock bottom, I started to connect with men in my life. And what I didn't realize was happening at the time was that I was sharing the defining moment of what, what had been happening for me. You know, all the stuff that people didn't know about. I was sort of like sharing my shadow, you know, sharing my own darkness, sharing my own pain, telling them where I had screwed up and, and how I had felt ashamed and like a failure and, you know, been out of integrity and, and I was really revealing this part of me to the people that were in my life. And what I started to realize was that a lot of men, when I did that, would share something about themselves that they hadn't told anybody else. You know, And so suddenly men in my life who I had known for a very long time started to share about attempted suicides and childhood abuse and unhappy marriages, failing businesses, affairs that I had no idea about. And these were guys that I was really close friends with. And so the, the real push towards creating man talks was in some ways I couldn't, I couldn't stand the fact that most of the men that I had in my life, I've, I've really realized that I had a very surface level relationship with and that I started to see that in so many men's lives. Um, acquaintances, people that I worked with, where there was just this surface level that we as men were operating on, but we were all craving depth within our friendship, you know, of really knowing one another, of knowing what our struggles were and challenges were. And I realized that when I started to be transparent and share my own shadows and share my own shit and let go of the need to be perceived as not perfect, but to be perceived as having it all together that when i could actually drop that bullshit and let people know the real me the flawed imperfect you know making stupid ass mistakes and decisions sometimes grappling with very real human problems that i felt deeply satiated i felt more connected to the men in my life and the women that i dated actually got to know who i was and that was much more rewarding and fulfilling. And so, you know, in a kind of selfish way, I just wanted that for other people. <laughs> in, in all honesty, it's just like, you know, it's just like having a really good cake uh, or donut and being like, people should try this. This is delicious, you know? And 
how is I eating that that plain garbage donut from Safeway or Costco? Like that was terrible. Uh, yeah. And, but now I found this artisanal donut that's amazing, and everybody needs to have it. Um, and then you talk to people, and you're like, "Have you had this artisanal donut?" And everybody's like, "No, what's that? I've never. What's a donut?" You're like, "Oh my god, I need to start a donut talks community and spread the right. word and start sharing." I love that, man. And I, I was gonna um, mention, you know, we've we've been in a. I should just put this in the intro, but we've been in a men's group for several years together, and we've all seen each other cry, and we've all celebrated successes and whatnot. And I think it's important to just reiterate reiterate that like this work is just ongoing perpetually it seems yes. like and i want to kind of remove the pedestal of oh connor literally wrote the book about men's work and he's coached thousands <laughs> of men and he's married to a powerful therapist and his life is dope and he's cracked the code forever there's no conflict he is enlightened uh, anything you feel called to share about that idea do you get asked about that ever? Uh, I mean, I, oftentimes people are like, well, what's the challenge that you're dealing with in your life right now? It's such a, you know, I, I think it's important to humanize. I'm no different than anybody else. I think I've just dedicated myself towards a certain aim and direction. And it doesn't mean that I still don't have my own flaws and my own challenges. I still deal with getting reactive and short-tempered sometimes. And getting caught on you know stupid meaningless stuff and it, all of that still happens you know it, it it does it's like there's one of my favorite spiritual teachers anthony Demello, who wrote a great book called awareness it's one of my favorites and in one of his talks he said uh before enlightenment i was depressed after enlightenment there was still depression and so there's this notion that we can have deep and meaningful spiritual awakenings in our life, deep and meaningful moments in our lives, but it doesn't mean that it eradicates some of the tendencies or proclivities towards self-destruction, self-abandonment, you know, it doesn't mean that. I still feel that all the time. You know, there's times where I've talked about it openly on through my platform where I was like, there's a 500 pound fat guy inside of me that just wants to sit around and smoke weed and play video games and not give a fuck about anything that i do in life just not give a shit about any of it and so but the difference is that i don't hate him anymore you know i don't hate him anymore i'm not like in a battle with him i, I get why he's there i get how my life created that part of me and so you know every once in a while i let him run loose and eat more than he probably should and and whatnot or sometimes i just have a conversation with him like what what's going on with this part of me you know why does this part of me want to self-sabotage and self-destruct so bad so it's just that I, the tools that i have now are radically different and the awareness that i have now is is much more expansive but it doesn't mean that i still don't get caught in my own bullshit. yeah I, one of the ways that i've heard that described in a similar ways they they were talking about paintings and masterpieces and how the, the greatest paintings are are mastered uh how do i how do i fucking say this i'm really uh being professional in this moment connor thanks for your patience like the <laughs> what makes a masterpiece a masterpiece is the shadows is the 
juxtaposition between the light and the darkness. It gives depth, it gives context, it gives realness. And without those shadows, it is simply this caricature, cartoon-esque version of reality that is fake and false and, and like mm-hmm. superficial and sugary. And yeah. so it sounds like what you're saying there also is, is by accepting and acknowledging the shadow part is um, a contribution to wholeness rather than the pursuit of happiness at all costs and pushing away the greedy side, pushing away the fearful side and the shame and just sort of building a bigger table and gathering it all around and mm-hmm. smashing donuts together. Yeah, we're going to have lots of food references, I can tell in this conversation. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think it, it, the other analogy is like, you know, there's there's beauty in the silence between the notes, you know, and and that those parts of us, those parts of the song that are us have to have a seat at the table. They have to be taken into consideration. And so, you know, we, I, I, like in the book, I talk about this notion that many of us buy into this false concept that there's strength in suppression. That if I can just shove the shit that I don't like about me down as far as possible and not let other people see it or know about it, that I will somehow be stronger, more confident, and more capable because of that, which is the fallacy. It's the lie. You know, It's actually in the facing the parts of you that you're afraid of, that you dislike, that you're uncomfortable with, that you don't want other people to know about. It's actually in the confrontation of those parts that you develop confidence and competence and internal safety and respect and all those other valuable traits that people are seeking. And so, yeah, I mean, I think sometimes, not that I go looking for those things anymore, they they just arise. Like I don't have to go looking for them. It's like they'll show up, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I, I never want to be perceived as like, dear God, I never want to be perceived as, as perfect. You know, I heard these people talking about, uh, the like rise of, of internet gurus the other day. And I like, was so interested in, in that conversation. But I think one of the big distinctions is, you know, I think people like you and me and Traver and Groves we're always advocating for people to find their way to their own path, to their own sense of home internally. It's not you need to follow my doctrine, my way of being, because it's the right way. It's like I always try and live from the Tao. And the first line of the Tao is the Tao that's called the Tao is not the Tao, right? The way that's called the way is not the way. And so I realized that my work that I put out in the world might not be the way for many people it just might not be the path for them they might find value in some of it and they might find that some of it's not valuable for them they don't or they don't get it or it's not at the right time or whatever it's like that's okay you know somebody else's work will resonate with them deeply so yeah yeah if you don't like broccoli then that's okay it doesn't mean the broccoli's bad just go eat some asparagus, bro. <laughs> just, just, I'm just like, I'm getting hungry as we talk about there's, this. There's I a want lot of donuts and broccoli now. It's just a platter of donuts and broccoli. I feel like it's very balanced. It's the, you got the shadow and, and the light. You got the, the healthy and the unhealthy. It's good. The porn reference, I picture the asparagus going in and out of the donut. It's like the, <laughs> <laughs> that's some, that's some 
fucked up food porn right there. It's just broccoli banging a donut. I'm glad I'm glad we finally got to this point of broccoli banging donuts. I have that on broccoli my notes. Penetration? Bring, broccoli penetration? Broccoli penetration? Definitely bring that up for Connor when he's on the podcast. And now I can tell Kendra when she inevitably asks, hey, how did that go with Connor? Like, oh, it was great. We talked about broccoli's fucking donuts. And um, where, do we, where do we go from here? <laughs> we're we're so this is your show, man. I don't. I'm just following you here. This is. This may be as far off track as I've ever been on this podcast, and that is saying something, my friend. <laughs> I'm glad that I could be uh, a witness and a participant in the authentic expression of Jeremy Goldberg. I, I have. I have a way to get us. I have a way to get us back on track. Okay, let's let's see the, let's see this one. <laughs> we just were talking about broccoli fucking donuts. How the hell do you come back from that? Let's see. I'm I'm ready with bated breath. You know, in the same way that some people <laughs> sometimes certain ideas work until they don't, right? And for a long time in our culture, in our society, we had this idealized version of masculinity, which mm. was the cowboy, the stoic, the harden up, teaspoon of concrete. We don't talk about our feelings. That's what makes it a man. And those ideas work until they don't, right? Mm. And so it sounds like what has been happening over the last decade or several decades, I think, going back is this kind of slow evolution or turning of the ship in a new direction. And it sounds like you and me and a bunch of our friends are a part of that kind of navigation system. And each in our own way are pointing out different trajectories, ideas, ways of thinking, ways of doing that may be helpful for some people and not helpful for others. I know I've certainly referred clients and people to you. And then other days I refer different clients and people to Traver or Mark or Mike Campbell or all these other amazing dudes. So it sounds like we're all just trying to put our work out in the world, see what sticks. You know, some people want the broccoli, some people want the donut, and some people want both. Broccoli <laughs> at donut. The same time. Um, but so uh, anything to say on that cultural component in terms of men historically being rewarded for being unfeeling? unemotional creatures and how that perception is changing i mean yeah i think i think that's a whole massive conversation you know <laughs> um I, you know i think in many ways we we're at this very interesting inflection point in human history where there's just a conversation about what's biologically true or relevant and that's a very interesting place to be and you know in the effort of expansion within who we are as a human being within human species there's i think some tendency to want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right to see masculinity or femininity or being a man or being a woman as obsolete and I think there's just a tremendous amount of research and information that counters that, you know, just astronomically large. You look at the field of evolutionary psychology, which is very fascinating. You know, it it researches cross-culturally, cross countries, across 
ethnicities, across religions, what men and women are selecting for in mates based off of our evolution. And that kind of stuff is gaining popularity and ground within our modern culture and conversation because it looks at essentially how men and women choose mates, you know, and some of the pieces that go into that, right? And so if you look at, for example, David Buss's work, uh, who wrote The Evolution of Desire, I mean, they did one of the biggest studies across the world that looks at what what are women actually looking for in men. And across cultures and across um, religions and ethnicities, one of the top things that women still look for is some form of status within a man, whether that is his capacity to get resources or have a large social network or to be able to acquire resources in the future, right? His, his resource acquisition potential in the future. So some of these things are, are very prominent, but I think, you know, when we, when we look at the conversation around men, you know, both men and women have played a role in our histories and men have often been on the sides of causing wars, fighting those wars, right? Domination, aggression. Um, and, and we can look at those things and we can say, well, all those things are bad. And that's, you know, could be true in some, some ways, shape or form. And in many ways it is, but men are also responsible for literally building out society and love it or hate it. Um, there, there are many aspects of society that men have contributed to that are good, that are net positive. And we're just living in this time where the cultural conversation is often one that looks at the contributions of men as being net negative, right? That assertiveness is somehow bad and wrong. You know, non-compliance is somehow bad and wrong. And and it can be, you know, it, when, when people aren't um, in integrity and respectful and all of those other things where there's a, a, a sense of like rightness behind it and not arrogant and all those types of things. Um, but I think that, I think that there's, how do I want to wrap this up? You know, I wanted to write this book to be very pro male and for it to be for men, from men and about men. Again, not to tell men who they should be or what that should look like, but also not to try and slander men. You know, I, I think that the average young boy in our culture is growing up in a, in a really hostile environment. You know, to, I don't envy, like I've, I thought about this a lot. I have a 22 month old son and I think that the culture that he's going to enter into is not welcoming for somebody who is a man and identifies as a man and enjoys being a man and enjoys being masculine. You know, I think in, on average, the, the perspective is that you should be, you should be apologetic for being a man or for being masculine. And I think that's a very, very slippery slope for a, a lot of reasons, which, you know, we can discuss. But I think in, in general, when you look at, you know, the fact that young boys are graduating high school and college less than ever before, young boys are entering into the workforce less than ever before, you know, less young men are sexually active than ever before. It's, it's like, 10 it's up three times in the last 10 years right so 27 percent of men under the age of 30 are either 
either have never been sexually active or haven't been sexually active in over a year. Now, that's not the case for young girls, right? Or women. It's, it's much, much, much less. So I think that the landscape for men has shifted. And I think that our cultural conversation, and I know this is maybe taking us in a different direction away because I don't talk about any of this stuff in the book, but I think that our con cultural conversation is very heated between men and women. And, um, and I think that there needs to be more level-headed conversation to see the value in what men and women bring to the table and, and to honor that, you know, and to appreciate that because appreciation is the currency of intimacy. If we want to have any intimacy between men and women, we have to have some kind of appreciation. And so, yeah, I just said a bunch of stuff. I don't know if any of it made it sense or landed with you or even feels relevant to this conversation. But that was a very, very specific analysis there. You did. You said a bunch of stuff and it was great, man. You're, you're brilliant. And I'm curious if you could say more about your experience with either personally or professionally with this kind of subconscious internalization of shame that men may have in terms of um, subconscious beliefs around men are bad or I was raised by women that taught me men are dangerous. And so how that might not be expressed fully, and that might create problems. Is that making sense? I think so. I'm, I'm going to take a stab at it and you let yeah, me know just, if I'm Maybe if just I'm say some stuff. Yeah. Maybe just say some stuff. I think that, so first and foremost, what I'll say is, again, we're living through what I would say is an epidemic of fatherless homes. So I, I think the stat is in America, it's like one in four kids will grow up without a father present or a father figure present in the home. One in four. That's crazy. You know, and and a lot of the research shows that children in single parent homes, and this is, again, this is not to knock anybody. This isn't to say that anybody's doing anything wrong. It's not to accuse anyone or or, or shame anyone, putting anyone down. But a lot of the data and research shows that children in single parent homes are going to have a harder time. And not interestingly enough, if you dig further into the data, it's not necessarily girls that are going to have a harder time. While they might be more promiscuous sexually, and they might be, you know, at a higher risk of um, of going to jail or or doing something devious, it's specifically young boys that suffer the consequences. And so, just as an example, sixty three percent of youth suicides come from fatherless homes. And 90% of all homelessness and runaway children come from fatherless homes. And 85% of all kids that show behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. Okay. And a Sorry. lot of those. 90% uh, of homeless people come from fatherless homes. Is that the Homeless stand? and runaway children. Yeah. Come 90%. 90%. And that just, just so you know, that's 32, 32 times the average. And this is all, again, this is all data from like U.S. Department of Health, CDC. Um, it's, you can access all this data online. So, so then just sorry to hijack this train of thought, but for someone listening that is a single mother or there, is raising a kid in a, a manless home, what's the, what's the way forward? <laughs> What do you, what do you do? <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know if I fully have an answer to that. I think. I think in many ways, the spaces where young boys could go are shrinking, right? I mean, it's, it's like I was a Boy Scout as a kid and I really enjoyed that. And it's like, that's gone. You know, it doesn't exist. 
Boy um, Scouts don't exist. Boy Scouts has been shutting down all over America for a number of reasons. Um, gir what? girls have been admitted into Boy Scouts now, and so it's it's not necessarily an all boys space anymore, and and a number a number of other things. But I, I think you know a couple of things that I have seen to be helpful is um, programs that put young boys in touch with and in contact with men that can support them or other boys that are of their age, but specifically older role models, right? So um, what's the what's the program in North America that I'm trying to think of that I'm blanking on? It'll come to me. Um, yeah. one of my one of my buddies is a is a part of it. But putting them into martial arts where they're going to learn discipline, where they're going to ideally have a good masculine male role model that can teach them skills in self-defense and teach them about their body and teach them about specifically being in relationship with their own power as a, as a young man, I think it's important, especially as that young man enters into puberty. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I entered into puberty as a young boy, I mean, it was, it was a wild experience. I was angry all the time. I wanted to punch holes in the walls. You know, I wanted to just, jerk off and masturbate all the time. I was getting hard-ons on the bus and shit. Like it was, it was a wild time. It's a very strange experience where all of a sudden part of your body is just online, you know, whenever it wants. <laughs> so, uh, but also I found that, and I think this is just from talking to a lot of men about what was it like for you to go through puberty? You start to feel this kind of physical and energetic potency within you. And part of that is because you're, you know, you're gaining muscle and your body is growing quite a bit. Um, part of it is likely attributed to testosterone and the increased production of that in your body, but also the sex hormones that start to come online. And so I think it's, I, I think that putting a young boy in those types of programs where he can learn valuable skills, right? Whether it's survival skills, camping skills, archery, um, whether it's you know some form of martial arts whether it's some form of team sports like getting him around other boys is important but more specifically getting him around a, a man that can be a blueprint for what it would look like to be a man because i think a lot of boys grow up with an absence of just male role models i mean even the school system right the education system has like a depleting and decreasing amount of male teachers. It's, it's like 32% now in North America of teachers are male, and that is decreasing year after year. It's not increasing, right? And so young boys that don't grow up in a household without a father around, it's not, it's not just that they don't have a dad around, it's that they actually don't have any real tangible tactical uh, role models of what it could even look like to be a man let alone to be a good man, let alone to be a grounded man. So I'd say source out those types of experiences um, and, and enroll your son, you know, and put him in those types of programs. Again, I think statistically girls will do better in that environment in, in school. Um, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't give them attention. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't put them in these types of programs at all. But I think it's just a different topic that I'm less versed in than, than boys and men. Yeah, fair. And I know we've talked about that in our men's group. For us, the the lack of elders is a whole other can of worms. And um, 
Yeah, I was just thinking about my own childhood as you were describing that of uh, how often I not just was around like good men, but how often or how frequently I was engaging them of having conversations, observing their behaviors, doing things together. And it was very rare, yeah. which is in such contrast, I believe, to historically, culturally, what would have happened back in the day it was the complete opposite. You're, you're, all, you're always around men. You're always going out and learning and being mentored and feeling them energetically, right? Um, what if, oh, what was I going to say? Um, if you were the Lorax, Connor, and you, you spoke for the men, uh, to the world, you know, the Lorax, the Dr. Seuss character speaks for the trees. I, I do. Yeah. I they're, know getting cut, they're getting cut down. The forests are depleted. And he's like, I'm, I'm standing up. I have some stuff to say. Like, what is something that you wish the world knew about men or that perhaps you wish was wider recognized or appreciated about men in general? Oh man, I don't know. It feels like too much responsibility. <laughs> I feel like I feel like there's probably better men out there. Better Lorax. Be given that yeah, torch, I mean, but, but maybe I think... I'll maybe I'll find someone that wrote a book about men to like ask. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, I think what comes to mind initially is first and foremost that there's like in, in internal family systems and in IFS, there's a saying that there's no bad parts. There's no bad parts. There's just parts that you don't know how to deal with that you haven't reconciled with yet and that you don't have a relationship with. And so I think what I would want people to know is not that there's no bad men, because of course there are men who do incredibly bad things, but the disdain of men and the dislike of men is is never helpful and it points more towards our own pain that needs to be resolved and worked with and healed and understood and i say that as somebody who was hurt by men growing up you know my dad and my mom got divorced when i was three i cried countless nights i wrote about it in the book you know as a boy where this deep pain this like hollowness, like I felt hollowed out, like something had winnowed me internally and, and stripped me of something that was deeply meaningful to me. And I remember nights where I was, I would just cry and be inconsolable because I didn't understand why he wasn't around. And I felt like I had done something at a very deep level or, or that there was something fundamentally wrong with me that he wasn't around. And then my stepfather turned out to be somebody who tried his best, but was reactive you know and we didn't get along well and i let him know that i didn't want him around and he was abusive sometimes you know in a number of different ways and so and, and again he and i have a wonderful relationship and i attribute part of who i am today because of him that's not to knock him at all i mean i i would probably be in a much worse place if he wasn't in my life but I still had a distrust of men. I was still hurt by men. And a lot of my womanizing, porn viewing, infidelities, lack of purpose, lack of direction was not only because I didn't trust men, but I didn't trust myself as a man because I was wounded by the masculine. And so I think that we all have a part 
in recognizing the pain that we've been given and the pain that we've passed on and being able to say, yeah, I was, I was hurt by men in some capacity. And, and it's not that we absolve them of their part in it. It's that we take up our part in the healing and, and carry that forward as men, as women. Because I think that right now in our culture, what's happening is, is that there's just a lot of demonization, you know? I mean, I, I saw, I talked about this on a, on a different podcast a little bit where, you know, somebody had asked me not necessarily a similar question, but you know, what do you think is the biggest challenge that, uh, that women can contribute to in, in helping men? And I said, you know, face and heal your own wounds with men. Like there are, there are articles online where women discuss openly the concept of would the world be a better place without men and a lot of them come to the conclusion of yes i want a world without men in it like just imagine the type of intellectual absurdity how closed your heart has to be to to have so much hate and vitriol towards an entire sex an entire gender that you want them all to disappear from the earth but that that's a part of our culture now does that exist on the other side are there some men that dislike women yes of course you know of course it exists and that's their responsibility as well so how do i distill that down i would probably distill it down to something like men still want to be needed within culture and society to be loved and appreciated for what they contribute and that the lack of that is cancerous to us it's it's cancerous to the masculine to tell men i don't need you i don't want you you, you know you don't have a place in my life you don't have a place in my culture and my society that is is one of the most damaging things that we can tell men and not only is it unhealthy, but I think it creates men who then are angry and rageful towards the culture that they're growing up in. And if you're not going to give me a place as a man, I'm going to create one. And you might not like the role that I create for myself when you've told me that you don't want me. And even further is if you don't give me a place, then I'm going to take it. That's right. right? Like yeah. that that relationship dynamic is is very dangerous yeah well on that happy note is this a decent spot to to end it how much time do you have what's your what's your schedule I got, another, I got another few minutes i mean we can yeah we can dig around a little bit more into anything else you you want to to talk about whether you want to go back to porn or talk about infidelity or talk about shadow work man I just keep thinking about those donuts. <clears throat> you, you were, I thought I had brought it right back on track. And then you started saying something really, really intelligently and, and very maturely. And in my brain, this like child part of me is like, broccoli's fucking a donut. And I had to like, <laughs> it's going to be the went, podcast, the like, like podcast image art for this episode, you know, be, be present, bro. Um, well, I know that you, you're kind of, at least in my brain, you're kind of like the shadow guy. So when I inter interact with clients or 
people on Instagram that message me questions or how do I do this? I kind of, you're like the go-to. I'm like, just go follow Connor's work or go listen to this podcast or whatever. And I'm curious what, like, how did you end up in that space? Like what's drawn you to that specific niche? Um, I know you're a big uh, Freud dork. Yeah. Uh, oh, young, young, sorry. Yeah. Or, but is it young? I thought it was they're, they're wildly different. It's definitely Carl yeah. Young. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> You're a big, big young dork. Um, how did you sort of find that that path? Is that intentional? Do you see yourself remaining in that niche? Yeah, I mean, so we were talking about elders before, and um I've been fortunate to have a couple elders in my life, you know, men that were in their 70s or 80s and and were mentors to me. And and oops, I dropped shit. And one of them, one of them entered into my life right after I hit rock bottom. Well, he was in my life before that, but really became prominent in my life after I hit rock bottom in my late twenties. And he was versed in Jungian psychology and CBT and Gestalt and a whole bunch of different therapeutic modalities and Buddhism, Zen, Taoism. And he, I ended up apprenticing with him for a number of years, where he sort of like taught me all these different modalities and implemented them in working with me, but also taught me how to, uh, to use some of these modalities. And so I've always kind of had a little bit of a Jungian frame on things. Cause I think it's very helpful. And the shadow is just something that Jung talked about a lot. And I think it's become much more prevalent in our society, you know? And so the, the shadow is just like the parts of us that we don't like, you know, it's our insecurities, it's our inferiorities, it's our fears, our worries, the, choices and decisions that we make that we don't want people to know about. And I think, you know, oftentimes for men, that's where we store our pain, our hurt. That's where we store our perceived weaknesses that we don't want other people to know about. And so in order for us to, Jung believed that in order for us to really find a sense of wholeness or as close to it as we can get, that we had to go and mine the shadow for gold you know we had to kind of enter in and say what am i afraid of of myself what don't i like about myself and what decisions do i not enjoy about you know that I, that i make and can i reconcile with them can i understand the purpose of them can i integrate them into my life in a meaningful way so that they're not hidden and so a lot of the work that i do with men is is saying like okay you know what does your shadow look like? And for a lot of people where their shadow comes out is in relationships because nothing triggers us like our partner, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's the person that we spend the most time with. They become a mirror and a reflection for us. And so for a lot of guys, you know, their hidden anger comes out in their relationship or their, their disconnection from their anger. You know, maybe a man who grew up in a, in a, household where uh his father wasn't around and and his mom you know told him things like never be like your father and your father was an angry man and an angry man's a dangerous man and so he learned very young and and early in his life to disconnect from his anger and so he doesn't set good boundaries and so he doesn't say no to things and you know people women friends family members just walk all over him and and he is miserable because of that so what would be in his shadow? His anger would be in his shadow. His capacity to say no, his capacity to say, that's not okay with me, you know, in a relationship, or I don't like that you said that or did that. And the 
the ability to be assertive. And the interesting thing is that how that usually shows up is through resentment and complaints, right? So just sort of follow that example. A lot of men who are disconnected from their anger will, or and disconnected from their assertiveness will get into relationships with women who are very connected to their assertiveness and who are very dominating, who are very aggressive, right? And who are fine with letting their anger out. And, and it creates a little bit of an imbalance because then she will be upset with him sometimes because he's not standing his own ground and saying, you know, I don't like that you just called me a jerk face or whatever, right? And so, so that man needs to be able to integrate that part of his shadow. He needs to be able to say, okay, there's value in my anger. And it's not something that's abusive or wrong or dangerous. Maybe for other people it was, but there's value in me allowing myself to feel angry sometimes and that that anger can have a utility in setting a boundary with somebody in my life to let them know what's okay and what's not okay. Because as many people have said, boundaries uh, teach other people how to treat us. And so, yeah, so that's a little bit about shadow, where it came from for me and like just a, a sort of example of what it might look like in somebody's life. Yeah. What do you like most about working with men? It's challenging. It's challenging. I've, I'm, I really mean that. Like I've, I've worked with a number of couples. My wife is a marriage and family therapist. I've worked with a number of couples. I've worked with a lot of women. And it's not that that's not easy. It's just there's, there's a different ease in that. And working with men, there's a lot more guards up. There's a lot more barriers. There's a lot more trust that has to be built and respect that has to be in place. And so I really enjoy the fact that when I've helped a man connect to something within himself that's meaningful, there is a real deep sense of accomplishment, you know, or when I've helped a man set boundaries in his relationship or find a deeper sense of purpose in his life or step into being a better father in some capacity, that I know that that is going to create a ripple effect in his family and in his relationship and and maybe for generations to come and so i love that notion that you know if i can help a man deal with his own suffering that maybe that will lessen the suffering of others that by helping him understand his own pain and learn to work with it and carry it that maybe that will lessen the pain of others not that it'll create a utopian world or make everything perfect but that it will actually enable men to be more effective at doing something that I think is is primal to men, which is learning how to deal with pain. Like if you look at initiations, and you and I have gone through initiations, you know, and we've we've studied initiation, but a huge part of initiation is to teach a young boy how to deal with pain, how to carry it, how to be with it, who he becomes when he's really powerless. And so yeah, that's what I love about it is that it's, I feel like I'm helping men learn something that is almost undescribably important, especially within our current culture. Mm. So I feel like I have purpose. Yeah. And spreading the medicine. Sounds yeah. like. <clears throat> yeah. Are you familiar with that story about the poisonous tree with the fence around it? Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't think so. <laughs> and. Admittedly, I might completely botch this 
little, yeah. little, little fable right now. Are, are you asking me if I'm familiar with it because you want me to tell the story? <laughs> yeah, could you just tell that so I don't have to embarrass myself real quick in front of thousands of people? Uh, nonetheless, I remember reading this uh, this fable. It's about a village and there's a tree there and the tree has fruit on it and the fruit is poisonous. And one of the villagers eats the fruit and and dies. And so in this example, the village cuts down the tree, digs up the roots, burns it, washes their hands clean of it. Another example, same village, same tree, same poison, same death. And the village decides to put a fence around the tree so that the tree can still live and do its tree thing. But people know not to touch that tree, not to eat that fruit, right? And and life goes on. And then in the third example, same tree, same poison, same death, etc. In this example, they go close to the fruit and they pick some and they study it and they learn that with the right dosage and in the right amount, that that is actually a really powerful medicine and that mm-hmm. it can cure and it can help and it can heal. And so it's kind of this story arc that I think is relatable to everything you've described here in the shadow, which is, mm. hey, get closer, get more comfortable through time. Eventually, you can hold it close. You can utilize it. You can alchemize it and spread the good. Whereas previously, the intention would be burn it down, keep it away, kill it, avoid it, etc. Yeah. yeah. That makes well sense. Said. Makes total sense. Good analogy. You did it. <laughs> <laughs> right. I wish uh, I wish I had the source or the actual story, but um, it, it just it made me think of that. And it, it seems like everything that you were discussing relates to that idea of getting a little bit more intimate and cultivating a little bit more awareness with who you are and why you do things and where they came from, with the intention of bettering them, healing them, and utilizing them to to stop the poison, so to speak. Yeah, like there's there's merit in getting to know your own darkness because Mm -hmm. if you don't know it then the people around you will have to know it right and and likely suffer the consequences of it Mm -hmm. so you have to sort of grapple with that part of you that maybe wants to stay in the victim position or wants to continue to justify blowing up and you know calling the people that you love names uh and, and acting childish you know, you have to sort of grapple with that part of you. And, you know, I think in some ways, maybe what we can do is wrap up because there's a great quote by Jung that uh, he shared in 1937, I think, in, in, his, in a lecture at Yale. And he said that the new man must bear the burdo, the burden, not burdo. <laughs> I don't know what a burdo is. The new man must bear the burden of the shadow consciously for such a man knows that where whatever is wrong in the world is in himself whatever is wrong in the world is in himself and if he only learns to deal with his own shadow he has done something real for the world he has succeeded in shouldering at least an infinitesimal part of the gigantic unsolved social problems of his day and so i think for me that's a huge part of why a lot of the book, like I talk about the shadow of the father and the shadow of the mother, about going near to your own pain, 
and about really starting to understand some of these parts of you that you haven't wanted to interact with and to know that those are probably the parts of you that are holding you back in the type of sex that you want, in the type of career that you want, in the type of body that you want, in the type of man that you want to become, whatever it is, that that is the part of you holding you back. And so not only are you doing something for you in in a uh, interpersonal way, but you're doing something for your relationship, your your family, and your community, and your world at large. You're doing something very meaningful. And we can see, and I'll just, this is the last thing that I'll say, because I think this is maybe important. I When I look out at the world right now, I see a tremendous amount of insanity when it comes to dealing with social problems. The insanity of, I don't want to deal with that, so I'm going to try and get away from it as far as humanly possible. Like the fact that, I'm trying to be very <laughs> sensitive about how I word this, but like, when people can't hear other people talk about certain issues like they can't even be in the vicinity of that we've we've lost the game as a species we've just lost the whole game of being able to survive as a species because the singular thing that connects us is a capacity to communicate our ability to understand one another negotiate maintain peace work through things that that's essential and it's no different with the parts of you as an individual. If you are adamant on not dealing with your own anxiety, with not dealing with your own anger or frustration or sadness or grief or depression, if you hate that part of yourself so much that you wish you could just kill it off and get it out of you, you're losing the game. And that part of you will continue to grow and gain power, and you won't have a relationship with it, and it'll continue to sabotage. Uh, the direction that you want to go in life. and But we're doing that culturally. We are culturally eroding conversation and we're telling people that it's okay, that if you don't want to be in a conversation or have a discourse or be in a certain environment, you don't, you don't have to be there and that that's okay, you know, if that's too much for you. And I, I think that the more that we allow that to permeate in our culture, the more dangerous it becomes because it's a very externalized example of saying, I don't want to deal with the shadow. So we're actually just going to ignore it entirely. And it's like, well, that shit will cause even more destruction, guaranteed, more dysfunction, more destruction, more harm than it will good. We can't ignore these hard conversations that might be hard for us or painful, whether it's with a partner, whether it's with a colleague, whether it's with a friend, whether it's in a social setting, we have to be able to have meaningful discourse to navigate through the challenges that are happening in this era of being so hyper-connected that we're interacting with so many people on a daily basis, you know? And I, hmm. yeah. So I think we have to be able to do that because it, maybe the last piece of this, maybe the last piece I'll say, because I love this part. And I'm, curious, I'm actually curious to get your thoughts on this. So Jung talked about the unconscious mind and he talked about the collective unconscious, which is like that there's this part of our unconscious that's collected to all. And I think in my sort of frame, my theory is that we've actually created an externalized version of the collective unconscious in the internet and in social media. 
where you can now go online every single day and interact with people's unconscious minds, where they are reacting, they're acting from anger and shame and hatred and violence and rage and et cetera. They're just acting from their unconscious parts. And we've actually created this place where all of us go. And some of us are very conscious and aware that we're interacting with people that are wildly dysregulated, that are wildly unconscious. Um, and we've just never been in a place and time in human history that I know of, that I think anybody knows of, where we're interacting with so many people all at once, all the time. And it's very disruptive to our psyche. And so I think that on a collective scale, and maybe this is very esoteric and existential, but I think on a collective scale, we individually are trying to reconcile with this new form of communication where we're interacting, not with just when you and I sit down and have a conversation that's conscious and I'm interacting with you, but I'm interacting with so many people's psyches. And that's very challenging for the average individual to do and stay grounded and stay centered and regulated and, and know where they stand and stay in alignment and stay in integrity. It's very, very challenging. So I think that's why the importance of doing the shadow work in a very sort of wildly high level, wildly existential and theoretical standpoint is important. But I love nerding out on that kind of stuff. So I I would hesitate to not bring it in. But what are your thoughts on that? I I love that idea. And I I know that we've talked about similar topics before. And uh and as a very brief tangent, I had uh Dewey Freeman on the podcast. Oh yeah. Right. This was a he was giving a talk online and he was talking about how he was recently interacting with a person and they got into a heated conversation about the nature of infinity. And I started laughing and I, and like, I was it Connor? I was like, was it Connor? Was it me? Did we do that? And I was telling Kendra about the time that you and I got into a very heated conversation about the nature of zero and nothingness. And your girlfriend at the time, Vienna, now your wife, had to come and intervene and lecture us both. And I remember her saying to you something like, you need to stop. Connor Beaton, you need to stop. <laughs> and like, But we were just loving it. We were like feisty existential quantum dorks. Um, but so to your point there, the thing that I that came up for me was the fact that you are essentially choosing to expose yourself to a swarm of dysregulation that yeah. is all gathered in one particular place. And it can feel as if that swarm has critical mass or the overwhelming majority or that they're right and that this is happening when in reality it might be five, 10, 500, 1,000 really passionate, dysregulated people gathering together in this location. And it's very difficult for me, at least in those moments, to remember that I am part of something much larger and that this is only a very small group of humans that are the most vocal. Um, and then to be exposed to that amount of collective dysregulation simultaneously in a single gathering is very discombobulating and somewhat terrifying when yeah. repeated day after day after day. And so I I agree with that. Um and I and I love 
that you stated the importance of doing the individual work because of the ripple effects collectively, not just in space, but also through time, which I know you're a big fan, fan of that language. Don't do it, Jared. Um, <laughs> no, we only got four minutes. <laughs> but it, 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 but this is the, you know, we talk about ancestral healing and being good ancestors now in our own lives. And the way to do all of that is to recognize the importance of our individual sovereignty, our individual choices, our our responsibility as future ancestors to try to live lives of integrity that we feel good about leaving to those that come next. And those old adages about borrowing the earth from those who come next. I think we kind of all, I certainly do, tend to forget about that mm. big scale macro perspective. And so I just want to reiterate that I love the shit out of you and I respect you tremendously. And you have shaped and changed my life so many ways for the better. And um, anyone listening, go buy his book, follow his work. Um, yeah, it's called Men's Work. I know you have a podcast that's also incredible called The Man Talks Podcast. You're on Instagram at Man Talks, but is there anything specific else to plug or promote? No, man, that's it. I mean, I, if uh, if you want to check out the book, mantalks.com forward slash book. And I would appreciate if you picked it up, whether you're, uh, you know, whether you're a man or you're a woman or however you identify, whatever that looks like. Um, I think you're going to find value in this book. And I've actually had a number of women who have got to read the book in advance to interview me on the show, on their shows, who have loved, loved, loved it. And mm -hmm. so um, I think because I think they just learned a lot about the men in their lives is what they've, what they've communicated. And so, um, so yeah. So, and if, if you enjoy it, uh, hit me up. If you have questions about it, hit me up. If you just want to share something about how it impacted you. Um, I love celebrating with community and this, this feels like one of those moments where I would love to hear from you. And so if you do read the book, if you pick up a copy, you know, yeah. DM me on Instagram, email me, whatever your medium is, uh, I'd love to hear from you. So, yeah. I'm just realizing one thing we didn't even talk about was the live in-person events that you do, the men's gatherings yeah. with Dewey. So just flagging that, if you're listening, there are ways to interact with Connor in real life. Hugely yeah. transformational. You will walk away affected. Um, and that's on your website, I'm pretty sure. You bet. You bet. Well, thanks for having me, Jared. This was a yeah, blast. Welcome. And this is definitely one of the most hilarious conversations I had. The, sem the sentiment is mutual. I love you, man. I'm so glad that I get to know you and spend time with you. And the way that you talk about things and view things is just, I will have those conversations all day long with you. Yeah. So appreciate you, buddy. Look forward to more. All right, brother. Yes, sir. Before we wrap up, one thing that I forgot to mention in the introduction is that Connor has a podcast and it's incredible. And I've listened to dozens of episodes of it. So you can check that out. It's the Man Talks podcast. He's on Instagram at Man Talks. He's got his new book out, remember, called Men's Work. And he does in-person events all over the place occasionally. So get in his space, follow him, check him out, and grab the book. I own a copy. I read some early drafts. I read some early chapters. It's really good. So thanks for being here. I appreciate you, and I hope that this conversation has helped stimulate some new ideas and new thoughts, and I hope also that you pass this podcast along to people that might need to listen to this. 
there is a man in your life that you are reminded of when you heard some of that stuff, please do send it along. Every little bit helps. Thanks for the shares. Thanks for the five-star reviews. And I will talk to you soon.